You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. I want to thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. I'm excited to bring you this very important discussion tonight with my friend, Pastor Joe Dallas. We're going to be discussing um, a fairly controversial and sensitive topic, but one that I think needs clarity, and that is the topic of conversion therapy. We're going to try to give some definition to this term that is being used a lot out there in the culture, but uh, we want to understand what is conversion therapy exactly, because Canada, our neighbor to the north, just outlawed conversion therapy um, is it really so dangerous that there needs to be a law against it? So we're going to try to get some insight into that. And, and I'm glad that Joe Dallas is here to help us. Now, this is, is a pre-recorded broadcast because God willing, I will be uh, traveling to Minnesota today. Uh, but I wanted to make sure to bring you some fresh content and some timely content, even though I'm out on the road. Now, by way of kind of a setup for our conversation tonight, you may or may not have uh, heard of a pretty popular documentary called Pray Away. It highlights the rise and fall of an evangelical ministry called Exodus International. Now, Exodus International is not an entity anymore, but this is a, a documentary uh, that focuses on what the documentary filmmakers call the pray away the gay movement. And I thought it would be helpful to kind of set the stage for our conversation with Joe to play the trailer for the film, because I think it sets the context for the discussion. So I'm going to have Bob play that trailer right now. And then we're going to bring Joe on and talk about conversion therapy and what happened at Exodus International. Let's play the clip. I was active in the gay community for 13 years. I was in it for six years, then struggled for five years before finding true freedom. It was 13 years for me. Four for me. We both walked away from it. I personally came out of the homosexual lifestyle. And we're just saying that if you want to change, there is a way to do it. I spent a lot of time thinking, how did I believe that? We were the leaders of the ex-gay movement. We believed that something must have happened to make you gay. Parents are learning about a program called Exodus, which claims to convert gays. We were promoting an idealized version of life. Gay people could be saved. I became a figurehead for this movement. My role was to get the message out. Homosexuality was changeable. I ached to be loved and to love a man. I went to my first Exodus conference when I was 17 years old. I remember feeling like this is the path to be good. It was awful pseudo-psychology. I started having panic attacks, the same-sex attractions. Those never went away. We had guys that attempted suicide because they felt guilty that they couldn't change. I'm looking at you. How does it feel to be broken? Is that a big deal? The 
voice inside me said, how could you do that to your own people? There are new people taking up the torch. I live transgender and, and I left everything, follow the Lord. There's so much shame. We're killing ourselves by not embracing who God created us to be. And with that, that is, that is a powerful trailer. But with that, I want to bring on Joe Dallas to help us kind of process some of these things. Joe is a former uh, gay man, and he's done a lot of writing about his journey out of the gay lifestyle and the gay community, really making the biblical case for traditional uh, sexuality and healing. He has a biblically based counseling ministry, does great work to the, for those who struggle with same-sex addiction or attraction and porn addiction. He's a friend of the ministry. It's an honor to have you here, Joe. Thanks oh. for coming back and talking to us. It's great seeing you again, Krista. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm sure that, that seeing that movie trailer brings up a lot of feelings for you. I think it's designed. I, I've made a few documentaries in my life. And yep. so I know that making documentaries part of that genre is to stir up people's emotions, especially when you're making a trailer. And I'll tell you, like the emotions that it brings up in me is like, I should go on social media and shout that the ex-gay movement is a dangerous fraud. Like that's everything mm -hmm. that the emotions come up for me. But I know that you were involved with Exodus International. So maybe we should start there. What was that? And, and what was your involvement? What were they about? Well, Krista, uh, have you ever looked at yourself in a funhouse mirror at an amusement park? Definitely, yes. Okay. Well, then you know how I feel right now. Watching that trailer, I think, okay, I see a little bit of what's really there. And then I see, <laughs> this is a rather massive distortion of what Exodus uh, really was. Because I'm sure again, you knew some of those people, right? I knew some of those people very well. Uh, Krista, yeah. in, in the film, you have four individuals, all of whom I knew personally, mm. um, three of whom, uh, no, excuse me, all four of whom, uh, John Polk, uh, Randy Thomas, Yvette, and Julie, I have worked with, uh, worked very closely with John in particular for years uh, with Focus on the Family. Yeah. And I'm still a very close friend, I'm glad to say, of his former wife, Anne who you saw in that trailer, she is still um, living out her life, uh, both as a Christian and as a former lesbian, and is still very actively involved in the, the ministry that she was in at the time. Uh, yeah, we had her on our show too last wonderful year. Person. And fact, she, she was uh, very wonderful. Uh, yeah, I've, I've just finished doing a series with her on my own podcast. But the point is, yes, I did, uh, I did know them. And uh, I feel uh, just an incredible sense of, of loss and hurt um, listening to their stories. Of course, uh, I, I would say the proof that this film was well made 
is the emotion it stirs. If you're doing your job right as a filmmaker, you're going to provoke emotion. So you're going to have sure. a narrative and you're going to promote that narrative. As you know very well, though, there is quite a difference between narrative and fact. Now, the narrative is pretty simple. If you say that homosexuality is a sin, you are shaming and psychologically damaging lesbian and gay people. If you say that homosexuality is changeable, either in behavior or in the feelings or in the identity, you are trying to get people to do something they cannot do because God meant them to be gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual. Therefore, you are creating harm in them and you are perpetrating a myth. That is the narrative, and people will make their stories to fit the narrative. Well, this is nothing yeah. new, is it? We saw that in the Gospels. There was a narrative about Jesus. They couldn't take what he really said and did and make much of a case out of that. So they took what he said and did, and they did the Funhouse Mirror number on it. They distorted it. He said the temple's going to be torn down. Oh, he said he's going to tear the temple down. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Oh, he's going to overthrow Rome, you see? And this is a, a tactic that works to this day. Uh, so let me start by saying that I am no more unbiased than they are, <laughs> and that I did work closely with Exodus. I was the president of Exodus International from 1990 to 1993. My ministry was an Exodus referral ministry from 1987 until about 2012. I worked very closely with Exodus, spoke at many of their conferences, and let me say very plainly, I am very grateful to have had the experience of working with Exodus. I'm very proud of the work Exodus did. So you're not interviewing a nice objective observer who can give neutral commentary. I was very invested in the ministry, and I love the work that Exodus did. That said, I do believe that what we're seeing is, as I said, um, a very distorted viewpoint being promoted of what Exodus was. And I think it's being promoted somewhat like this, if I could use a, a, an analogy. Krista, suppose somebody said, I want to start a movement to ban religious abuse of children. And, and so I would get some people who as children were raised in destructive churches and you get a, a, a young man on who said, I was raised in a church where my father beat me with a cane because he said that the Bible said not to spare the rod. And I went to the pastor and the pastor said, don't be a, re a rebel. That's like the sin of witchcraft. Submit to your father. And I went to a counselor and I said, please help me. And the counselor said, no, you need to conform to God's will, which is for you to submit to your father's punishment. And I spent years being physically abused. And now I am here to say we must stop the religious abuse of children. Now, how would you respond? Why, Christy, you know how you'd respond. That's horrible. That's terrible. Where do I sign up? Let's make right. a ban on that. Only after you voted for the person promoting the ban, only after you signed the petition for the ban, did you read the fine print? And when it defined religious abuse of children, it said, we are banning the following, telling your child he has a curfew telling your child that you will decide who she may or may not date, telling your child that may, they may not look at inappropriate material on their computer. And you'd say, wait a minute. I didn't want to pass a van on that. That's normal upbringing. Sorry, yeah. 
the bans in place. Krista, that is exactly what we're looking at here. The ban on conversion therapy, the bans on conversion therapy are bans on practices, alleged on alleged practices that don't exist being imposed on legitimate practices that do exist. And that's the problem. That's a great setup because I think that it highlights a couple of issues of, of how important definitions truly are. Yep. And sometimes there can be a setup for us when we're not insider, we don't have insider information and something just is presented to us. And we think, yeah, I wanna, I wanna be against that. That's no sure. good, that's horrible. Sure. And, but then we don't realize like, oh, how we have to unpack all of that. And so kind of when we think about and we hear about Exodus International, the thing that was so awful that people want us to denounce is this issue of conversion therapy. Right. And so the idea of the documentary is to present these vignettes and these stories about people that in their experience felt like they got damaged yes. by the, by the ex-gay stream of, of ministry. And I think that probably to just kind of, I think my understanding of Exodus was that it was kind of a network of other ministries. It was a referral network. And so people might call that and then they would refer them to other ministries that might be local in their area or mm -hmm. a particular kind of support. There was an annual conference. And so it was kind of a hub of a lot of smaller um ex-gay ministries is that is that kind of what what exodus was krista you're hitting on one of the most important points to make when you describe exodus international exodus international was essentially a referral agency um, exodus international was not a church it was not a denomination it was a referral agency for anyone in the country or abroad who wanted to find a christian ministry that would address homosexuality from a biblical perspective. Whether it was a person like me who in 1984 had realized, hey, homosexuality is not God's will. What do I do now? I want to live an obedient life. Or a parent who says, I have a gay daughter. How do I relate to her? Or a pastor who says, how do I improve my ministry to lesbian and gay people? Exodus would refer them to a ministry in their area. Every ministry was independent and unique because... Exodus Ministries represented all denominations and no denominations. We had charismatic, non-charismatic, high church, low church. We had some that were prayer oriented. If you went to some Exodus Ministries, you would have people pray for you. Others, you would have people counsel you. Some would counsel from a rather secular clinical perspective. Some would counsel from a strictly biblical discipleship perspective. Some were group oriented. Some were one-on-one. -on -one. There was no uniformity. The only uniformity for any Exodus ministry would be this. All Exodus ministries had to adhere to a standard Orthodox statement of faith. All of them had to hold the Orthodox belief that homosexuality fell short of God's will, and as being a defined sin, it could be overcome. All Exodus ministries had to have a local church overseeing them, a local board, and accountability. So each one was essentially independent in that sense. And the reason I say that, a lot of people think, oh, when Exodus closed, that was the end of what they call ex-gay ministry. Nonsense. 
all of the ministries associated with Exodus continued because we were all independent anyway. No one was reliant on Exodus for their existence. The Exodus referral network closed. The ministries continued. And that's, that's a distinction a lot of people don't make. So there was no like centralized Exodus methodology of you walked people through these steps or this is this was the conversion therapy model that they we forced people to go through like None that's whatsoever. not what it was none yeah. whatsoever at any given time in Exodus's history and I mean from the time it was formed in the mid 1970s until it closed in 2013 you could not find any one method prescribed for all Exodus ministries because all of us were unique. Now, I will say this, having defended Exodus, let me be the first to say, like with any organization, there were Exodus leaders who either went rogue, who got involved in practices that were a little weird. I knew of cases where people, for example, were casting demons out of people who were coming saying, I want to repent of homosexual sin. Oh, okay, we'll cast the devil out of you. That was largely frowned on in Exodus. There were people who relied on what I would call questionable psychological techniques, uh, beating a pillow with a tennis racket and saying, this is dad and I'm mad at you, which is not something I really believe is very helpful. Um, there were some Exodus leaders who would at times overemphasize the parent-child relationship and say, oh, if you're a gay man, something must have gone wrong with dad. So there were times when I would say some Exodus leaders said or did things I would disapprove of. And some Exodus leaders did get involved in scandals where they fell sexually. And Exodus always, without exception, honorably took action immediately. If any minister was found to have fallen into sexual sin, they had to step down, as with any denomination. And I guess I don't need to point out that, unfortunately, with every church denomination or any organization of any kind, you do have people who get involved in sexual sin. Yeah. So I don't believe that you could ever say with any integrity, Exodus was all like this or all like that, because Exodus ministries were all unique in their approach. All of them were under local church oversight. All of them adhered to Orthodox Christian beliefs, and then all of them had different ministry approaches in as the, as they lived out those beliefs. Very good. So, when we hear about conversion therapy, which the Pray Away documentary really hones in on, mm -hmm. and and now we're looking at Canada, which recently outlawed conversion therapy, and I think it's important to give that a definition because. Yes. Um, all I think most people know is conversion therapy is bad. And it's, yeah. it's something I, and I, I was, I was telling my husband before we started taping today, I said, you know, I think a lot of people wonder almost if conversion therapy is something like we forced people to get, you know, electrocuted with cattle prods, people that struggle with same sex attraction. Like it's just a horrible, torturous, inhumane type of treatment. And so we have to get clarity about what is it that we're talking about? Because Canada just outlawed it in a, in a whole country. So what mm -hmm. is conversion therapy? Yeah, I've always resented that too, Krista, because I personally stopped using cattle prods years ago. <laughs> my tasers are all fur lined. I'm very gentle when I shock my people. How ludicrous do we have to get here? Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> let, let me kind of start by pointing this out. 
It is very clever to come up with a sinister sounding term and apply it to people who you want to discredit. That's what we've got going on here. For example, the term religious right. Now look how negative your feeling is even when I say that. Why? Because we have been taught for decades that any Christian involved in the political system who wants to affect any kind of political or social change as a Christian is part of the religious right. What's the religious right? Now, it's a little hard to define, but it's basically Christians who, because they are uh, politically involved, they want to establish a theocracy. They want to keep all women home barefoot and pregnant. They want to roll back all civil rights that have been achieved, and they want to make it criminal for you not to become a Christian. Ludicrous, yes, but people buy into it. Now, the term itself has so morphed that it now includes anybody who holds the belief that in a nation like ours, it's a Christian responsibility to live and vote as a responsible citizen and be involved in the system. It's the same is true of the term conversion therapy. No one, Krista, who does ministry to homosexual people calls himself or herself a conversion therapist. Search the web, you will not find one organization using that term and applying it to themselves. Any more than you'll find a Christian who says, oh yes, I'm part of the religious right. And there's a reason for that. It's a sinister term that has been imposed on us, but it does not describe us. Now, when you try to nail it down, well, what do you mean by conversion therapy? At first, the bands say in large print, conversion therapy is, is the discredited practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation. And at first glance, you go, well, there, that sounds somewhat right in that, first of all, you should not try to coerce a gay or lesbian or transgender person into changing if that is not their wish. People have free will given by God. We must respect that. Uh, now, uh, that is different than, of course, if you're talking about your own minor sons or daughters there, you need to exercise parental authority. I still am not in favor of forcing kids into counseling, but I'm certainly in favor of you as mom and dad saying, this is what I will or will not allow you to be a part of. That's certainly true. But um, conversion therapy, if, if it was practiced in such a way that people were coerced into counseling or if the counseling attempted something bizarre like electroshock therapy, or some form of aversion therapy. My goodness, I saw a film uh, two years ago that came out called Boy Erased. Mm -hmm. And it was similar to this documentary we saw. And it was uh, the story of someone who allegedly had gone through one of the Exodus ministries. And in the ministry he went through, as part of the treatment, they held him underwater. They beat him with a Bible. They called him faggot and all these awful names. Well, none of that was true. And in the book he wrote, which the movie was based on, he never said anything like that. But if you walked away from the movie and saw that, you would have thought, oh, that's what they do at Exodus. Now, when that's we conversion saw, therapy. That's conversion therapy. When I walked out of the theater with my wife, I said, honey, if I did half the things I just saw in that film, I'd pass a law against myself, of course. But the point is, um, the, the attempt is to cause people to think that we are either doing something bizarre and sinister like that, like forcing people to change or doing bizarre things to make them change or making promises that won't be fulfilled. A very common accusation made against people who do so-called conversion therapy is that we tell people you can pray the gay away or if you follow our formula, your homosexual feelings will go away. No one I know who does this kind of ministry has ever promised such a thing. 
we do believe what scripture says about homosexuality, that it, like many sins, falls short of God's will. That does not make the homosexual better or less than any other person who commits a sin. And that as a sin, it can be overcome, meaning we no longer have to be held by the power of that sin. If people repent of that sin, the outcomes will vary from person to person. All people have the freedom and ability in Christ not to continue in sin. Some will continue having strong temptations towards that sin, which they resist by the grace of God. Others will find a transformative power at work that relieves them from the temptations. Some will find something in between. So the outcome is unique to the individual, very similar to praying for people uh, to be healed. Krista, I, I mean, we pray for people yeah. to be physically healed. Do all people who get prayed for get physically healed? No. Now, has some weird stuff been done in the name of healing ministry? You bet. I've seen some things that are just astonishing done in the name of healing people. Um, but I also know that the Bible commends the elders of the church laying hands on someone and praying for them to recover. The Bible does commend praying for the sick. And we know that the outcome will vary from person to person. We don't denigrate the idea of praying for someone to be healed then just because some people have done it irresponsibly, nor should we denigrate the idea of people offering discipleship to people who say, okay, I repent of homosexual sin. I will put away the porn. I will stop the behavior. What can I do now? Conversion therapy is a label being applied to people who do even that. Canada, for example, when it passed its ban on conversion therapy, included under the definition of conversion therapy any attempt to change homosexual behavior. Well, now, wait a minute. In 1984, when I decided that homosexuality was not an option for me, I had every right to decide to stop that behavior and to seek help from someone whose goals and beliefs aligned with mine to help me achieve those goals. Now think about this for a minute, Krista. I counsel a lot of married men who have gotten involved in homosexual sin using homosexual porn or even hooking up with men. If one of these bans was in place in America, a man like that would come to me and say, I want to stay faithful to my wife. I don't want to act on my homosexual feelings. I would have to say, sorry, buddy, you're on your own. That's illegal. Or I'd have to do what I know I will do. I'd have to go rogue and just say, sure, I'll help you. And if they arrest me, they arrest me. But th this is what most people don't understand. These bans are not just banning um, a sweeping promise that we will transform your desires. It even bans helping people change their behavior. This is why the ban is nothing less than an encroaching on religious freedom and, and a limitation of the church, really. I think that's a very important distinction because I hear you saying that we need to, to carefully differentiate between coercion, which mm -hmm. is what the, the, the media wants us to believe and the culture and some governments want us to believe conversion therapy is in the same bucket as coercion. Yes. And, but what we're saying is that people should have resources available that align with their views that if they want to work on unwanted same-sex attractions and explore that through prayer or through biblical counseling or conventional counseling, that there, that ought to be made available. And exactly. I think that I, I think that's an important distinction because the the confusing thing is that the 
the culture has so demonized the, the term conversion therapy um, that I think that these bands, I mean, the one in Lafayette, Indiana, for example, just got withdrawn yesterday Yes, or, or, or the day before as we're taping this. And they had the definition of conversion therapy as any practice or treatment that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change gender expression or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic feelings or attractions toward individuals of the same gender. And it really goes after people who are unlicensed. So like, let's say I'm a baseball coach and one of the kids on my team says that they have these struggles. Well, I can't refer them to any help or uh, if, if I'm a pastor, but I'm not a licensed therapist, I, I can't do much. My hands are kind of tied. Or if I'm a Christian school teacher and, and my, one of my students discloses something, I think even if I was a friend or a parent, you know, I can't, I can't guide people a certain kind of a way that's pretty, we do start in going down a road of encroaching on religious freedom. And so I think, yeah, I think that differentiating between coercion, which we are not advocating for coercive methods, but we are advocating for the idea of resources being available to anyone who wants them. Now, Krista, one argument often made when we say, hey, we're not coercing people is that, well, you may not be coercing people, but as long as the church teaches that homosexuality is a sin, Mm -hmm. people who go to church and identify themselves as Christians, who have a relationship with God through Christ, they will feel compelled to do something to overcome what you are calling a sin. And that can be its own form of coercion. But really, uh, a, a couple of points on that. Number one, I, I was no brainwashed, helpless idiot when I was 29 years old back in 1984 and decided that, hey, I no longer want this in my life. I made a conscious choice. I had the right to get assistance in pursuing that choice. Secondly, what really cuts to the heart of the matter is this. Coercion therapy is a convenient term. It, it's conversion. very Conversion, conversion therapy. therapy. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, it basically, it's like um, a big pair of elastic sweatpants, one size fits all. It can apply to anyone. It started off as a clinical term. The conversion therapist initially was viewed as a psychoanalytic therapist who attempted to employ Freudian techniques to change people's sexual orientation or a bizarre Skinnerian therapist who was electrocuting people. Now it's morphed to anybody who first believes that homosexuality falls short of God's will and then helps someone not to yield to homosexual temptations. That alone is now being seen as conversion therapy. Krista, pastors do that. Right. Youth ministers do that. Concerned friends do that. A baseball coach would do that. And this is the heart of the matter. We are not just seeing an attempt to limit what either parachurch ministries or licensed counselors can do. This goes right into the local church and tells the pastor what he may or may not teach about human sexuality and how he may or may not counsel people dealing with their own sexual issues. This is the culture now basically saying, we reserve the right to tell you what you may or may not call a sin. 
Now, I, I, there are, up to this point in our history in America, the gay rights movement, Krista, has been essentially about attaining new prerogatives for lesbian and gay people. Um, the, 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 the prerogative of state-sanctioned marriage, uh, the prerogative to serve in the military, the prerogative to adopt children. It's basically been a movement saying, give us these particular rights. Now we can argue about whether or not that should have happened, but that's what it has been. It's about people saying, give us these rights. Now for the first time, the movement is turning around saying, we want to now tell you what you may or may not do. At first it was, don't tell us what we may or may not do. Now it is, we are going to tell you what you may say, what you may not say, and the consequences for saying what we do not approve of. This is why a very dangerous precedent is being set. This is not just about homosexuality. This is about the church abdicating our role as salt and light. We will not be able to give people the full counsel of God if we let the culture tell us how we may counsel. That's the problem. So... In hearing all of this, I think that as you reflect back on where the quote-unquote ex-gay movement was in the 80s and 90s, where it is today, do you see any missteps that were made or how things have shifted? Like, I know that there's one moment in that, in the Pray Away documentary where John Polk says, I think he's on the Oprah show or something, and he mm-hmm. says, you know, like, I never have temptations anymore when it comes to men, something to that effect. Yeah. I, well. You know, in his more private moments and other parts of the video, he says, well, you know, that that, that's not true. Like, and so do you think that there was maybe pressure back then of, you know, once you're a Christian, you won't have these temptations anymore? Do you think that (laughs) that that the the movement has evolved at all? And, um, you know, I'm just wondering if you've noticed any shifts or if you reflect back on things that you said or did in the 80s or that the movement was doing that you think, you know, I've changed my mind about this part of it. Yes, sure. Krista, I was involved with Exodus for nearly three decades. So absolutely. There are things I will speak in general about Exodus and specifically about me as a former Exodus leader. Uh, Anytime you say something about Exodus, you have to qualify it with some and at times. Some people at times did this. Some people at times did that because Nobody did the same thing, really. I mean, other than the uniform, we believe in the basics of the scripture. We believe homosexuality is a sin. We believe Christ can set us free. Sure, we were in uniformity on that. On other areas, some took, a uh, just for example, the psychological approach. Um, up until, I believe, about the mid-1980s, Exodus did not really do much with psychology. It was all discipleship-oriented, Bible-oriented. Goodness sakes, the first keynote speaker at an Exodus conference was Dr. Walter Martin, the late Dr. Walter Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was all basically, uh, in fact, one of the commonest sayings that was, that was uh, put out by Exodus was, not a method, but a person, Jesus Christ. And by and large, Exodus stuck to that. Now, a couple of uh, Christian psychologists spoke at Exodus conferences and pointed out family dynamics that so many of us realized applied to us. And for so many of us, myself included, the light bulbs went on. We said, you're right. I had never thought of that before. And for many of us, there are psychological theories about early developmental needs for male intimacy not being properly met through the family dynamics and eventually became sexualized. 
I'm a poster boy in my own history for that theory. So there was nothing wrong with teaching it as one possible contributing factor to homosexuality. The problem was many of us, I think, assumed too broadly, well, that must apply to all people. And it does not, number one. Many homosexual men, many lesbian women had wonderful uh, family backgrounds, loving parents, healthy environments. So go figure. The Bible doesn't teach us that apart from it being part of the sin nature, that there's any one cause of homosexuality, you know. So there are, I'm sure, many different reasons people become attracted to the same sex. So I think we could have done a better job. I certainly will say this of myself. In fact, when I wrote my book, uh, Speaking of Homosexuality, about five years ago, uh, I said that I wish that in the past I had been less adamant about what causes homosexuality and the definition of change because the origins are different for different people and the outcome is different for different people when you're talking about feelings. Now, all people should have the same outcome when it comes to behavior, certainly. But as with any life-dominating sin, some people repent of drug use or of violence or of gossip or of pornography, and they find that they have virtually no temptation towards that behavior. Others repent just as earnestly and find that, oh, I have to maybe on a daily basis again say no to that temptation and both outcomes are biblical so what i wish i had said more as an exodus leader was let us not make demands of god let us not put limitations on god let's not tell god if i repent of homosexuality you must completely deliver me from all homosexual temptation there was pressure i believe largely from the church krista at one time to make that kind of declaration because face it it was very hard to talk about this in church at all and when you did, it had to be a rather pristine presentation. I know that for a fact, because I remember being a guest on one of the most popular Christian television programs in the, uh, this was in the mid-1990s, mind you. And uh, when I came on, the producer met me beforehand and said, we are so nervous having you on the show tonight. We have never had somebody like you. Your testimony is something we've never had before. Our, the, the regular host won't even come on because they're scared of this show. We don't know how our partners are going to behave. We've never had someone like you on before. Krista, I knew for a fact even then that that same television show had gone into prisons and interviewed three of the former members of the Charles Manson family who were serving life sentences for committing some of the most notorious mass murders in American history. And they had become Christians, so they had a testimony. Former mass murderers were okay to interview. But a former homosexual, now that's controversial. Now, you see, with that kind of an attitude, of course, I can see why John said, oh, uh, yeah, no temptations. It, I even had people say to me, I'm not comfortable with you being here, just knowing that I had been involved in homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So now I think that the Promise Keepers men's movement opened up the door for people to stop talking about sexual temptation like it's all a thing of the past. It made it okay for Christian men, at least, to say, Yes, I'm tempted by pornography. I'm tempted by lust. I didn't just repent of that sin and I have no more temptation towards it. I, I am currently needing accountability and confession and prayer. And that in turn opened the door for, for testimonies of all kinds. So today, you'll, it would be very rare to hear somebody say, as John had said on the Oprah show, oh, no, no temptations, no fantasies, no nothing. I mean, I know for myself, I've said for actually decades now, 
that although no, I, I am not attracted to men sexually, I know pretty well under what circumstances I could be. I still have a weakness for certain kinds of imagery or certain locations. There are things I would never do. I would never go evangelizing at the gay pride parade. I think that would be, um, that, that could be a real trigger for me. I wouldn't go minister in gay bars. You know, other people could, good for them, but not me. Well, if I was completely delivered, that wouldn't be an issue, you see. So I think it's easier now for people to just be honest about it. But at one time, I think there was more reluctance to talk about the struggle in the here and now. And the weakness of that was it did leave some people thinking, oh, there must be something wrong with me if I still struggle. Now, again, in fairness, we should qualify that. Most Exodus leaders, I think, were speaking very responsibly on temptation and sin. But I think some were too sweeping and some overemphasized psychology and some were too legalistic. There were some Exodus ministries that I think put an overemphasis on, oh, if you repented of male homosexuality, let's put some muscle on you. Let's teach you to play football, be more masculine. Or if it was a woman, come on now, honey, we got to get some makeup on you and we want to see a little more Shirley Temple and, you know, a little less Ellen DeGeneres or something. I mean, yeah. and that, that was rare, but it happened. And again, in fairness, you see uh, missteps in any ministry. There were some in Exodus, but by and large, everything I just described, these are things most Exodus leaders were not guilty of, and it would be unfair to say that they were. I think that's that's very helpful. And, and just thinking about, you know, the role of therapy in the journey out of homosexuality. I mean, even that is not, you know, it's not going to be one road for everybody. You know, Correct. everyone's going to have to kind of explore their own issues. Now, what I hear you saying is there could be patterns across the across, you know, like a certain percentage of people who come out of homosexuality. But even between men and women, it's a different journey. It's different it, issues. It certainly is. It's not it doesn't show up the same. And everyone has to explore what that is for themselves. And mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of what I hear you saying. But I think there's a perception that the therapeutic goal or, or the goal and the discipleship goal is, well, I'm now straight, I'm getting married, I'm having kids, I'm putting on the front of this particular traditional lifestyle with no temptations and no struggles. But I don't hear you saying that's the actual goal. I, I think that's no, more of that a is not. Per perception that we put on the gay, ex-gay movement, but that might not be the actual goal for many of the people who are working and ministering in that movement. Krista, I find it very unfair for people to accuse Exodus of having promoted that idea. By and large, Exodus did not promote the idea that once you repent of homosexual sin, you will never again have homosexual temptations. Exodus definitely did not promote the idea that you should get married to get healed, or that marriage is the goal, or even that change of feelings is the goal. Most of us had an experience exactly like mine. When I was brought to repentance in 1984, I clearly knew that I was outside God's will. I needed to repent. My prayer was not God change my feelings. My prayer was God help me to live the life of an obedient disciple, whatever may come of that. Now, for all of us in Exodus, the basics we held in uniformity. The Bible is the authority. It is the word of God. The basics of the faith are true. There is no other name by which you can be saved. Having been born again, you want to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and be living a sanctified life. 
there we agreed. And uh, what I have found over the years is that those basics have to be in place no matter what. Let's just compare it for a minute to dieting, okay? There are certain diet principles that apply to all of us. Um, I, I lost a lot of weight last year, so I know a thing or two about this. Uh, you got to cut down on the carbs. You got to cut down on the starches. You should up your metabolism a little. Okay, fine. Now, which diet plan out there should you follow? Weight Watchers, Nutrisystem? I don't know which whichever one is going to be most amenable to you. Fine. The same with things like parachurch ministry, counseling, even books. You have to go with the basics first. If you want to get serious about a life-dominating sin like homosexuality, be in the word daily, develop your prayer life, make sure you are in fellowship on a regular basis, get some good godly mentoring, be sure you have done what you need to do to separate yourself from the sin. Then if in addition to that, you find a good counselor or a good parachurch ministry, good for you, go for it. But that is what I would call the supplement. You have to eat a balanced diet no matter what. If you want to throw in some protein powder and vitamin B as supplements, that's okay. But those are supplements. That's not your main diet. Exodus was always a supplement. We never said we were the main diet. The main diet was the local church. We were there to supplement. I like that phraseology that you said a minute ago of a life dominating sin, because you're comparing the struggle of homosexuality with other life-dominating sins and, yes. and not trying to siphon it off as, as being this, you know, this different kind of a thing. Like if somebody gets deep into, you know, particular forms of porn addiction, it can take over their life. Oh my gosh. Yes. Gambling can take over somebody's mm -hmm. life in a life-dominating kind of a way and addictions such as, you know, heroin addiction or meth addiction, these are things that, you know, if I, if I were, might compare them, it's, it's, they're going to need a lot of different ways of getting a handle on this. You know, prayer mm -hmm. might be one of them. Uh, fellowship might be one of them. Mentorship and discipling might be one of them. Therapy might be one of them. A 12-step program might be one of them, but we're going to need a lot of approaches to begin to tackle and turn the tide on a life dominating sin. That's kind of what I hear you saying there. That is exactly right. And that's true for all believers, regardless of whatever sinful tendencies we are dealing with. Um, and, and as I said, outcomes vary from person to person. Krista, I, I'm sure you've known some people who, for example, maybe had a problem with their big mouth and they brought that to God and whoa, they just, that was it. Clean slate, no more problems. And other people, it's like, mm, I got to work on this daily. I have to keep abiding and confessing. And I think of, you remember that conversation between the Lord and Peter after the resurrection when they're sitting around and it's basically a restorative time for Peter. Jesus is asking him, okay, let's get back to what you said about how you love me more than everybody else. And, and he says to him, now, Peter, you are going to be led in a direction you don't necessarily want to go. And then Peter looks over at John and says, what about him? And Jesus said, you know what? If it's my will for him to tarry until I come, what's it to you? Follow me. Now, there's a cue in that, I think, for all of us. If you want to follow Jesus, you don't look at somebody else's outcome and say, well, they followed the Lord and they got married. They got completely relieved of their homosexual temptations. They got rich. They got famous, whatever. No, follow me. Peter would die a martyr's death. 
John would live and eventually die a natural death. Okay, fine. I mean, we don't get to say this is what the outcome should be. In all cases, what was the command? Follow me. And this is what I say now to anybody who repents of homosexuality. I can guarantee you, you will be given what you need to live the life God intends you to live. But following him does not mean you'll get the same outcome other people get. And I think we still in the church have that mentality, for example, of marriage as being the happy ending. When I give my testimony in churches frequently, I talk about when I was born again, when I recommitted to Christ and was brought back to the truth, and then the day I got married. Guess which one always gets the applause? The day I got married. Sure. Even more than the day I was born again. Now, come on. I think one is more important than the other, and I'm happily married. It's been 35 years now, praise God. But that's not the proof that I was, I mean, anybody can get married, face it. <laughs> Secondly, um, I didn't get married as, as any attempt to prove anything. And third, marriage is not the happy ending. Marriage is a wonderful thing if that is what God has for you. Fine. You find a wife, you find a husband, you found a good thing. But the outcome is going to vary from person to person. And so I believe that we who do what they call conversion therapy are accused of pushing marriage accused of pushing change of sexual feelings, accused of pushing certain psychological theories, when in fact, if you go to the websites of the people who do this work, you'll find it is essentially discipleship oriented. So the label boogeyman is getting put on Mr. Rogers and poor Mr. Rogers is being banned and he's going, hey, all I'm trying to do is do what I'm gifted to do. But if the public thinks he's the boogeyman, that's what the public's going to respond to. Right. My question to the modern church is, will we allow ourselves to be coerced into being told what we may or may not say within the church? Because as I said, this is not about parachurch ministries or licensed counselors. This is about the body of Christ. And I think too, though, it's important for people to understand that I think that there's a couple, at least two, possibly three different streams now that are differentiating in the ex-gay mm -hmm. movement. And that's another difference, I think, than it was maybe 30 years ago, where, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have an increasing number of, of people who call themselves evangelicals in the ex-gay movement who do have a, a, a belief, a strong belief, that sexual orientation is a fixed, unchangeable reality. Mm -hmm. And so what you've been outlining here is, I just want to call people's attention to that this is one particular stream of the ex-gay ministry, but but there is another there is another stream that people will run into. And sometimes you guys are all kind of lumped together, is mm -hmm. is is what I've noticed. But I, I did a podcast about this a few months ago with Andrew Rodriguez, and yes, that was very helpful. And I think you and him are are kind of in the same stream of of ministry with Ann Paul. I think and, pretty highly of Andrew. Yeah. And 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 others, you guys are kind of in the more um Linda Seiler mm -hmm. and um uh Ken Williams and the changed yeah. movement. You guys are all in the in from what I can tell from your content, you you all hold a position that is 
look, this, this is a, 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 a life dominating sin for some people. It's going to take time. God will be in a process with you. There will be discipleship. There will be prayer. There will be Bible reading. There will be, for some, there'll be therapy, counseling. But there is this other idea that sexual orientation is fixed and therapy will not be helpful in Mm -hmm. in that situation am i imagining that that there's these kind of different approaches i think you're getting it just about right there krista i think we basically have um i guess the reality of what happens when any population grows if there's a population of people in a certain area of ministry you're going to see some split offs and some sort of adjusting and morphine and usually um what you have are differences of emphasis um, my feeling is most of us who, who you just named, Andrew Rodriguez, myself, Ann Polk, Ken Williams, we believe that transformation is an ongoing experience for all believers. It may play out in different ways, but transformation is real. In other words, we are being changed from glory to glory. We didn't make that up. Paul said that. Now, that does not mean that everybody who repents of a sin will experience the same degree of complete freedom from the temptation towards that sin. So we do not tell people, if you have not completely changed, you're doing something wrong. That's not true. Krista, I know a few people who repented of homosexuality decades ago, decades ago. And to this day, they are single and celibate and do on a regular basis resist homosexual temptations, and they live godly lives, healthy lives, and very abundant lives. But their outcome was different than mine. Now, what am I supposed to say? They did it wrong. They didn't find the right counselor or read the right book. Come on. No, of course not. Different outcomes vary from different people. My objection to people who say, well, it's fixed, it can't change, is that they impose that outcome on all people which you really don't want to do. And that's why I say you don't want to limit the power of God. You don't want to make demands of God either. I think we need to be open to whatever changes God would make in our lives. So my problem is that at times people get into a line of thought, which is either too fixed or overdefined. Too fixed is when you say, if you repent of homosexual sin, you will always be homosexually attracted. Don't expect any changes. It's also too fixed to say, if you repent, you're going to be completely changed. Expect that. I say, follow him. Submit your desires and passions. And I do always tell my clients, and I I believe strongly about this, be realistic and be prepared for temptations regardless. And then if they don't come and you're prepared for them, no harm, no foul, but don't be naive. Because what the heart has rejected, the mind has recorded. And I hate to admit it, but I've got... I've got a mental library of pornography that I started creating when I was a kid. Now, I have repented of porn use. It's been well over 30 years, but that sucker is still locked in my memory banks. I can't do anything about it. So I think it's better to be prepared for temptation than to insist it'll be gone. But let's not not over um, limit people. That's one problem. So the one line of thought is, again, you must be transformed. Another line of thought is more like ours, the people you just named, which is transformation is a reality for all believers, but it plays out differently with each of us. Don't tell people they can't change. And we won't tell you, you must change. Just keep following him. Another line of thought is it's fixed. If you repent, you'll always be attracted to the same sex, live a godly life as best you can. 
And I think that is too fixed and too rigid. Another is the worst, I would say, and that's over-identification. That's when people say, uh, homosexuality is a sin. I no longer do it, but I'm gay. I'm a gay Christian. I'm a sexual minority. If I get married, it'll be a mixed orientation marriage. And um, I, if I have a friendship, it's not just a friendship with a brother. It's a special friendship. It's a spiritual friendship. We're in a very committed kind of a relationship, but it's not sexual. Now, I believe that's an over-identification because I see nothing in scripture telling us we should identify ourselves by a sinful tendency, nor do I see anything in scripture telling me to apply a positive term to a sinful tendency. Gay is a positive term. That's why I felt strongly when I repented that God made it clear I was never again to call myself gay. I was to be honest about my feelings and say I'm a Christian who has homosexual temptations, but not to identify myself by those temptations. So when you talk about the the different lines of thought, those are the ones I believe you're talking about there, Krista. And again, I I think we, you know, we we always got to get back to, you know, what Paul asked the Romans. Well, what saith the scripture? What does the Bible have to say about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, about the old nature and the new nature, and about living a sanctified life? Go with that, and you're going to stay on the right track. It certainly seems like, though, the the, the voices that are in the stream that you're in, of that have a posture of, of possible outcomes i don't want to use the transformation because that just sounds like it gets everyone has the same outcome and and it's all completed but but that there's there's more of an optimism or a a working in that some progress can be made that'll look different for every person but seems like the voices that are in that stream um tend to be the ones that that have their book removed from amazon you know that, Here. that it yeah <laughs> i know ann polk said the had you know similar situation um you know a, a couple other smaller ministries have had their youtube channels taken over or deplatformed on their social media uh, i think the restored network has had some major problems with they their have. social social media accounts and being locked out of them. But I find it interesting that all of you are kind of in the same stream of the ex-gay conversation. And that makes me kind of wonder, um, you know, what is it that is, somebody in in the sensors are sensing that you have a different approach to this and and that's not going to be okay for them. What is it that that character on Saturday Night Live used to say, the church lady? Could it be Satan? <laughs> I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm being facetious. Obvi- I don't think people who disagree with me are the devil or of the devil. Sure. I will only point this out, Krista. Let's be fair, okay? When I repented, I started following the Lord. I transplanted myself into another county, got some good Christian counseling, got into good fellowship got into spiritual disciplines, was living a sanctified life. And lo and behold, I find that in the process of living my life, I meet a young woman and I start wanting to see more of her. We start talking more and more. And I begin realizing I don't just think she's a lovely Christian sister. I want her. I desire her. Would it have been fair for somebody to say to me, no, Joe, that can't happen? You know, we married in 1987. We've had two sons. Our union brought life. And it brought emotional life as well as physical life. 
none of that would have happened if I had bought into the idea that that was not a possibility for me. I do not think it should be held up as a standard for everyone because it should not. Many people are not called to marriage and we should not impose that on them, but nor should we impose celibacy on people who are not called to celibacy. And this is my objection to, to the censoring of the transformative voice. If we were doing a name it and claim it kind of thing, if we but were that's saying, the accusation against your stream is that yeah. you are, a, I'm glad you brought that up because I've heard this, that you are a form of kind of a word faith approach mm -hmm. to the gay problem, that you're a name it and claim it. I've heard that about, about that stream. And yet if anybody looks at what we do, they would have to realize we couldn't be doing that because we counsel people on a weekly basis. We hold meetings, we write books, we Look, if the answer was name it and claim it, I could make a million dollars just going on YouTube saying, okay, repeat after me. Here's I'm the straight, formula. Yeah. I'm ready. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Now send me your $5,000 check and you're in. Okay? Yeah. We don't do that. It's, very, it's a terrible misrepresentation. It really it, is unfair. However, I will say this. If we did that, if we did a, a word of faith, hyper faith, you know, name it and claim it kind of an approach, uh, yeah, people should be calling us on it because that's a that's an irresponsible thing to do and i think it's a very cruel thing to do to tell sick, sick people if they're not healed they've sinned mm -hmm. uh and the same is true of people who still are tempted homosexually it's cruel to tell them oh well if that's the case you're doing something wrong you haven't grown up that's not true but nor should we tell people that the degree to which they find relief of homosexual temptations is going to be the same as everybody else's, because that's not true either. For all of us, the journey is different with a different outcome. So my, my feeling is, let's not tell anybody what their outcome has to be. Let's celebrate the outcomes that God brings about in people's lives without insisting that one size has to fit all. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, as we kind of round this out, I want to just ask you one last question. I think when we're dealing, we've had a lot of conversation here about um, not acting in coercive ways and, and, you know, allowing people to have choice in what kind of treatment they seek. But culturally speaking, and this is just an observation, and I'd love to hear what you think about it. It seems like the issue of being gay or trans is now being weaponized uh, to divide families as younger and younger people are being encouraged to kind of make these identity statements. And um, I'm just wondering, as you're helping and supporting families, what options do Christian parents have to help their kids or to approach this conversation with their kids when their kids are, are seeming like they're going down this path or getting caught up with friends who are advocating this and, and that kind of a thing? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I, I often say to Christian parents, don't abdicate, do educate. Mm. Don't abdicate. You're going to be the bad guy. Because if your daughter comes and says, I'm trans, if your son says, I'm gay, I, I want to live this out. I want to join the gay, the LGBTQ club at school. I want to And he's 12, guy. you yeah. know, yeah. Um, don't abdicate. You are still mom, you are still dad, and you have every, not only right, you have a mandate uh, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You don't shame them. You don't call them names. You don't send them the message that, oh, I think you're somehow freaky now. But you do make a clear look. 
I cannot tell you what to feel and I cannot tell you what to think, but I will tell you what you may or may not do. And that's non-negotiable. But then also do educate, list, help them understand that you want to know their experience and help them understand that you understand what it's like to struggle with something. Having said all that, I do need to point this out, Krista. These days, it's hard to take at face value any kid who's 12 years old who says, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm trans. It could well be. I mean, I many kids that age know, but many kids don't know that they are that. But what they do know is in 2022, there is a certain status afforded in many cases to kids who identify that way. You'll be seen as brave for coming out. You'll have a built-in community. You will be celebrated and you will be pitied as someone who is a victim. There is a status that comes with that title now, gay, lesbian, cis, uh, transgender, asexual, bisexual. There's a status that comes with accepting those labels and with that status comes privilege. Now, for a lot of kids who are vulnerable and want to feel they belong to some group and have some kind of status to hang on to, can be very tempting to say, oh, I guess that's me. So I also encourage parents, I don't want to give you false hope by saying it's just a phase, but at least consider the fact that you should not take it at face value when your kid says, I'm gay, lesbian, trans, whatever. Scratch the surface and break down those definitions. And I think you'll often find that they're calling themselves something when in fact they are experiencing something else. All right, good. Thank you so much. All right. Tell people about your ministry, Joe, where they can connect with you. Maybe tell them about your new book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, they can connect with me at joedallas.com. That's easy. Just my name, joedallas.com. I have both a book and a podcast just out by the same title, Christians in a Cancel Culture. We had the privilege of having you and Monique on yes. before. Want to have you on again. It was wonderful. But um, yeah, my book is written to equip believers to do what you and I have been doing. Discuss the hot button issues intelligently and biblically. So our podcast and my book, they're both designed to help people discuss racism, abortion, homosexuality, transgender, and progressive Christianity. So if, uh, if you want to find out more about that or about our services, we do offer counsel for family members and for individuals struggling. We're basically about know the truth, live the truth, and express the truth, all three. So again, joedallas.com. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Joe. I really Such appreciate it. Such a pleasure it. talking with you always, anytime, anytime, Krista. Well, it's, it's just an honor. And I've followed your ministry for years, and it's just so fun to be able to reach out to you and ask for your help in this conversation. Thank you so much. And Thank I just you. want to say, uh, I hope all of you have found this podcast helpful. Uh, I look forward to your feedback about it. Pray for Monique and I while we're on the road, that we'll have safety as we travel, and that the Holy Spirit will bring the increase as we travel and speak about racial unity. Thank you so much. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom, and all the things. Thanks for listening.